Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. to our table gathering, whether you're joining us live up here on this beautiful, beautiful April Sunday morning here at the Mill Street House or wherever you are um, listening to us around the world via the podcast. We're really glad that you've taken the time to to join us this morning. And um, as we kind of work our way through, as we've been doing a Passion for Peace, that's our series. And we've been spending one Sunday on one day of Holy Week. We started with Monday. We've gone through Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And today, which is traditionally Palm Sunday, we are actually going to be studying the story of uh, the narrative of what happened on Friday during Holy Week, um, Good Friday. And so we're going to do a little bit of a different approach this morning. We're going to do a narrative approach where uh, we do like a harmony, if you will, of the gospel stories and narratives surrounding what happened on that Friday. And remembering Friday technically starts at sundown on Thursday, right? So we have that time frame where we're going to start in the evening and then work our way around um, and then pause and ask some questions um, as we work our way through the text, okay? So Friday, I've titled this Friday, Good for Us, Bad for God. So Good Friday is when we remember the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ at Calvary, when he offered his life up in order that we might be reconciled to God. You've seen it depicted in movies, television, theater, you've heard it on the radio, you've seen it and heard it from the pews and across the world wide web. Movies like The Passion of the Christ glamorized the suffering of Jesus, The Life of Brian satirized Jesus' motivation, and Jesus Christ Superstar managed to somehow totally miss the point of Jesus' life on earth, as far as I can tell. Today, we'll be returning to the Gospels and their record of the events that happened on Friday of Holy Week. At points throughout history, uh, throughout our journey, we'll pause, reflect, and consider the impact the events have had on history, but most importantly, on our own lives. This Friday is good for us, bad for God. So let's begin with the events in the garden that ignite his passion. The Jewish day dawns with night, and never has it been more fitting since today the hour has come, and the power of darkness is on full display. Judas has gone to betray Jesus. Peter has promised never to deny him. All the disciples said the same thing. Together, they head to the garden, where the tragic events will unfold. Luke 22, 39-46. Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and the disciples followed him. When he arrived, he said to them, Pray that you won't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. When he got up from from his praying, he went to the disciples. He found them asleep, overcome by grief. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. 
So once again, in the moments when Jesus needed them most, the disciples are emotionally, spiritually, and in some ways, physically absent. But did you notice in the text it says, when he got up from praying, Jesus went to the disciples, he found them asleep, overcome by grief. I wonder, what were the disciples grieving? What do you think? What were the disciples grieving, do you think? Is there more than one option? You can answer. This is... <laughs> They're grieving the loss of, their perception was always that the new kingdom would be kind of overthrowing of Rome and no longer being under that impression. And it's them grieving the fact that that's not really going to be the way. They're getting the feelings like, oh, this is not going to be the way that we thought it was. <coughs> I don't think they had fully comprehended that Jesus was actually going to be killed at this point. I don't think they're grieving the loss of Jesus at this point. I think they're grieving something else. And that would be the natural tendency, wouldn't it? For us to think their grief is about what Jesus is undergoing, because what you're reading there is intense, brutal suffering, right? But they're what? Sleeping. I mean, they're asleep. So that's probably fair. They're not necessarily doing that. What else? So when we last talked, they were doing Passover in hiding in a safe room that would be the safe room after Jesus dies. So do, are they aware they're in danger at this point? Like, is that what they're grieving? Is that they could be. can't be in the open? It could be, yeah. That they're having to, on this, one of the most holy days, holy seasons, let's call it that, unleavened bread and Passover gets... Gets all blended, kind of in a weird sort of. Woo. It's like three in a row. It's like boom, 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 right? So um, yeah. So I, I think that's a fair. Yeah. What if they're grieving the unexpected? There's, something's changing. There's a shift, and they shift in Jesus. A shift in their. I mean, they've been walking with Jesus for the last three years, you know, and they're shift. They're they're understanding that something is going to change, like right now. And we don't know what that is or what that's going to be like. And I think that can be very draining on people. There's going to be some doubt in their minds with all this. And I could see me doubting and feeling defeated. You know, like I've spent three years with this guy and look what's happening. I mean, I wonder what part grief played in their action slash lack of action. I, think, I wonder what part grief played in their action, or you might argue <laughs> lack of action. Right? Jesus kept saying, hey, come with me, especially to the three, and <clears throat> pray with me. Be in this vigil with me. What part did grief play in that? I know when I get stressed, I fall asleep. I nap with my stress or anxiety. That's how I retreat from feeling things, is to fall asleep. Any other ideas? How grief 
what role grief played in their actions or lack thereof? One of the first stages of grief is denial. So they could just be like, you know, this isn't happening. <laughs> I'm just going to sleep it off and we'll be okay when we wake up. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So before long, torches and hushed voices signaled the arrival of the arrest party. Judas, along with the members of the temple guard and the Sanhedrin, made their presence known. Soldiers and servants encircle Jesus. The disciples stand on the outskirts. And Jesus notes the irony of their action. Listen, Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Day after day I was with you in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. But this is your time when darkness rules. So Judas steps forward, and with a kiss, or should we say a kiss off, he betrays his rabbi. Then Peter, flushed with anger, pulls out his sword and lunges at those nearest to Jesus. Malchus flinches, but not enough. Blinding pain and blood surge where his ear had been. Voices speak, but Malchus only hears the screaming wound, which he's grabbed with both hands. And then he feels a hand touch his hand, and the pain vanishes. Under his hands is an ear. Stunned, he looks at Jesus, already being led away. Disciples are scattering. Malchus looks down at his bloody hands. I wonder how the disciples reacted at the sight of their compatriot, Judas, betraying Jesus. What do you think? I wonder how the disciples reacted at the sight of their compatriot, Judas, betraying Jesus. It's real now. It's not just something that Jesus had told them that night earlier in the upper room. Remember, we said last week there was, seemed to be maybe a little bit of confusion. I think it's Luke's gospel tells us that a little bit of confusion, like, did, did he send Judas to, like, go get something or what? So how do you think the disciples shock. reacted? A shock. One of the lead disciples turned Jesus in. Shock's a good word. What else? Anger. Anger at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Anger at Jesus for letting that happen. Ooh. Is there, do you think, uh, let's hold Peter aside for a moment. Do you, do you envision any other reaction, like, i.e., like, we're, we're thinking, like, in their head, they're thinking this. When, but reaction can be more than just something that they're thinking. Do you see them reacting toward Judas? Do you? you know, I was just wondering, you know, did Peter try and, you know, stab Judas while he was at it? Yeah. He's wielding that sword around. You know, did he they have at least two. Yeah. Do they take a lunge at Judas for being a traitor? You know, I thought the same reaction that Dan's talking about, but then I thought, you know, Judas was probably pretty good friends with quite a few of them. I mean, we always made Judas out to be this bad guy all the way through, but maybe not. You think anybody wants to come to his defense? It's hard to imagine, right? I wonder what angered Peter. You know, because Peter's the one, of course, perpetually 
He's the one who always responds, right? And he says he's angry. I wonder what angered Peter. Was it the betrayal? Was it the illegality of the night arrest? Was it something else entirely? What do you think? Peter's angry. He lunges, reacts. Is he angry about the betrayal? And if so, who's the betrayer? And what about, could it be the illegality of the night arrest? That's not allowed in Judaism. So coming under the cover of darkness might anger him or something else entirely. What do you think? It seems more like he's always all along been a fixer. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can fix that. I'm not relying on God to have the answer, but he's just going to get in there and fix it. And so it seems to me it's more of a motivation of, oh, I'll take care of this. So why is he angry? If it is anger. It seems like it might even be, you are not taking my savior, my friend, away. Yeah, I see it more as like fear, desperation, or desperation. I think another layer of the, yeah, I think another layer of that is that a lot of his actions through other stories where he's kind of put himself out there have come from a place of wanting to protect Jesus. Where there's a, there's a sense of ownership that's like, oh, I need to protect him. In this case, from Judas. In, in this case, from Judas or the mob or however you want, whoever you want to be able to say. But it, it, coming from that fear of you're not going to take him away, I'm going to help you get out of this situation. But also, he goes for the soldier, not for Judas. Like, I, it, it feels like if it was an anger reaction, you'd mm-hmm. go against the person that brought this on, not the people who are complying with their government job to bring in a, yeah. a convict. So it feels more like maybe the revolution has begun. Jesus told us to bring our swords <laughs> um, to me, but... It seems like the logical anger reaction would be to go for Judas, not the soldier. But. I do think, though, we have to, um, based on, remember, the irony of the situation is, Jesus says, day after day I was with you in the temple. Mm-hmm. Peter's going, yeah, we were there, mm-hmm. right? But you didn't arrest me. Instead, you wait until darkness to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see myself, if I'm Peter, being angered by... What are you afraid of? I mean, if you're, if you're so, you know, if you're such a big, tough dude, why are you slinking around at night? Like, I could see that. Yeah, and Peter was a leader, too. Sure. And I can see him charging into battle, trying to rally the troops in a way, you know? I mean, just see him doing that. Yeah, so it's, so in, in, in Peter's mind, because of his, if we were picking an anagram for him, he's not ready, ain't fire. Ready, fire, aim. Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> Which is how it works, right? So from the garden, he's brought to the Sanhedrin or interacts with members of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is led brusquely into the house of Annas, a former high priest. He was the priest, high priest, who was appointed by Cyrenius, the one who called for the census. Um, he's also the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest of the day. He goes there for questioning, John chapter 18, 19 to 24. Meanwhile, the chief priest questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answers, 
I've spoken openly in the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews gather. I've said nothing in private. Why ask me? Ask those who heard what I told them. They told what I said after Jesus spoke. One of the guards standing there slapped Jesus in the face. Is that how you would answer the high priest? He asked. Jesus replied, If I speak wrongly, testify about what was wrong. But if I speak correctly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus knows this informal interrogation is meant to kind of catch him up, maybe to disorient him, maybe catch him unguarded, and his response is masterful. He's like, you really already know the answer to the question, and if you don't, what does he say? Asks all the people who were there. He doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't... Um, he gives this manipulative leader nothing. Rather, he refers Annas to his hearers, and he is struck with irony. He is struck by a Jewish officer for showing disrespect. So frustrated, Annas sends Jesus to the home of his son-in-law Caiaphas, the current high priest and the leader of the Sanhedrin. But I wonder why. I wonder why those who arrested Jesus chose to bring him first to. Annas. Why Annas, the former high priest? Why there first? Maybe they lacked confidence in his son-in-law. Maybe betrays a lack of confidence in Caiaphas as... Maybe it's like... He needs someone who has the knowledge and intellect to be able to try and make Jesus slip up and can catch it. So they thought he was a, he would be the better interrogator yeah. to get Jesus because to say something? If he, he can go into the more obscure, the minute detail that other people may not know to be able to say, oh, ha, I got you. Just on the littlest thing, because they're looking for the tiniest crack. Would they be able to do the formal process in the dead of night? No, this is all illegal. Okay. Every little bit of so it. So this is, they're just, this they're is not kangaroo taking report. it to the official person because they shouldn't be taking it to the official person. Yes. Stall tactic. Stall tactic. I like that. What did you guys say? What you said, working their way up the chain. Yeah, so there's there's definitely a sense that, that Annas has, like, the behind-the-scenes power. You know, the, the high priest thing is a family thing, so it's appointed, and, and so there's still, you know, even though it's his son-in-law, there's still, like, he's still got a lot of respect, and I think that's fair. But I wonder now, also, what motivates Annas to send him to Caiaphas? Jesus' cleverness at answering the... Like, yeah. yeah, I gave my best shot. Yeah, it's above my favorite. Jesus is clever. Very clever. I love how Jesus' response, too, is it's almost hinting back at the, so you decided to do this at night, huh? I mean, you could just ask everyone who was there during the day, too, and they'd be able to answer the same question. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of a 
a little bit of a backhanded remark of like, yeah, you know you're doing this at night because you don't have anything. Because <laughs> everyone else who could corroborate isn't here right now. The undercover of darkness. So at Caiaphas' house, the trial gets underway quickly. Morning will come fast. The council needs a damning verdict by daybreak. The examination proceeds at, as bleary-eyed Sanhedrin members continue to file in. Matthew 26, 59-63. The chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They didn't find anything they could use from the many false witnesses who were willing to come forward. But finally, they found two who said, This man said, I can destroy God's temple and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood and said to Jesus, Aren't you going to respond to the testimony these people have brought against you? But Jesus was silent. It's clear again, right? The trial has been assembled hastily. The, the witnesses haven't been screened well. Testimonies don't line up. Council members look disconcerted. Jesus is silent as a lamb. So irritated and impatient, Caiaphas cuts to the quick. By the living God, I demand you, tell me whether you are the Christ, God's son. I wonder why Jesus was silent in that moment. Is this, is this part of his plan for peace? Is this why he remains silent at this moment? Is it part of his peacemaking strategy or something else? In a Roman court, when you are silent, that's really meaning you are guilty. They, they are automatically you know, putting the guilt on you when you are silent because you're supposed to defend yourself. But I don't I don't know about the Jewish Yeah, why you would be doing that. Yeah. There's some okay. It's good. I feel like does it matter? Like if you were Jesus, would it matter what you mm -hmm. say? Like the you know the end result. And he is fulfilling prophecy. Right. Of course. Yeah. And he know I think he knows that or is aware of that, right? Mm -hmm. There is a prophecy that he would not defend himself. Do you ever wonder why there were so many witnesses, by the way, with nothing to contribute, willing to come forward and speak against Jesus? They were probably paid yeah. beforehand. I thought about that. <clears throat> I mean, willing to come out to a kangaroo court in the middle of the night? We all say, Love to be the fly on the wall in that meeting. <laughs> well, the thing is, in the Torah, it talks so much about false witness, mm -hmm. and and you also need to have the witness of two, and they need to be tight, yeah. not not you know, oh, I forgot that little detail and you know stuff like that. So uh, they they are messing up really bad. So they finally get it says they finally get two that say. Well, we heard him say something about tearing down the temple. In other words, I can't get you. We can't get him on the claiming to be God thing. But we have two people who said we heard you talk about tearing down the temple. Yeah, but something about tearing. Yeah, something about tearing. Don't too detailed and you know per perfect yeah. witness. Exactly. Makes so, me feel like it was likely the 
like the religious elites that were wanting to climb the ladder that were like hanging about and heard something's up so they're trying to be there and be present the vendors in the temple that he just could be <laughs> yeah there's a there are a list of people but interestingly with nothing to say really nothing of substance so the hour has come charged in the name of his father to answer Jesus speaks the words that seal the doom to which he had come to endure Matthew 26 64 you said Jesus replied but I say to you that from now on you'll see the human one sitting on the right hand of the Almighty coming on the heavenly clouds. So he says, finally, yes, what you have charged me with, I am indeed the Son of God. And that response elicits an act of law-defying political and religious theater never before seen on the part of Caiaphas, the members of the Sanhedrin, and the Roman leaders. Matthew 26, 65 to 67. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He's insulting God. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you've heard his insult against God. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves to die. Then they spit in his face and beat him. They beat him and said, Prophesy for us, Christ, who hit you. So Caiaphas tears his robes in what I would call feigned outrage and a thinly concealed relief. Finally, the blasphemy of Jesus is on record. But don't be confused. I've read this passage hundreds of times. And when Caiaphas, when it says the high priest tore his clothes, don't be confused. He's not tearing his own clothes. He's tearing the clothes of Jesus. When a man was condemned to death in the Jewish court, the judge would tear his robes and never repair them as a sign of the individual's break with the covenant and the finality of the sentence. Matthew 27, 1 through 9. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people reached the decision to have Jesus put to death. They bound him, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned to die, he felt deep regret. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and said, I did wrong. I betrayed an innocent man. But they said, what is that to us? That is your problem. Judas threw the silver pieces into the temple and left. Then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the pieces and said, according to the law, it is not right to put this money in the treasury. Since it was used to pay for someone's life, it is unclean. So they decided to use it to buy the potter's field where strangers could be buried. That's why that field is called Field of Blood to this day. This fulfilled the words of Jeremiah the prophet. And I took the 30 pieces of silver, the price for the one whose price had been set by some of the Israelites. And I gave it, gave them for the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Do you catch the irony of their concern for the law? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. What are we going to do with these 30 pieces of silver that have now corrupted the temple? Say nothing of the fact that everything that they've done up to this point has been pointedly against the law, but now their concern is we got to get it out of here. Because it's, you know, it's, it's making the temple unclean. So as the sun breaks over the eastern ridge of Jerusalem, Judas swings from his own belt. Peter rides in the grief of his failure, and the face of Jesus now is swollen and bruised, streaked with dried blood and saliva from the pre-dawn sport of the temple police. The council's verdict was guilty of blasphemy. Their sentence, death. But it's a sentence, sentence that they themselves cannot carry out because Rome refuses to delegate capital punishment. So it's time now to inquire of Rome. I wonder if those responsible for this kangaroo court verdict believe that they would have the support of their Roman overlords. I wonder if they thought they would have the support of their Roman overlords on a charge of not revolt, not overthrowing Rome, but on blasphemy. Do you think they thought they would have their support? If perhaps they thought that they could make the case that it would lead to upheaval within the Jewish people, which would be a headache to Rome. And also, did Rome feel like their leader, like their king, was mm. God? Did cool. they have a... Caesar was... On the son of God. But to Rome, what is one crazy man claiming that he's God? Wouldn't be the first, right? <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like they, they look for people who will just say anything on the street and be like, oh, yeah, he, he's done. He's got to go. But he does have a history of a following, too. Like, he, he's not just one crazy man on the street corner. He's got mm -hmm. a crowd of people that have followed him around the region. Mm -hmm. So if, they, if, you, if you're not certain they, um, that they believe they had their support of Rome, the support of Rome, I wonder what their plan was. Like, plan B. So if they bring them to Rome, the Roman overlord, if you will, who's Jewish, or at least half Jewish in this case, um, what do you think was their plan? Was there a plan B, do you think, at this point? Or is it all your chips are in? It's all or nothing here. probably do it with or without the blessing of Rome. Ideally, with the blessing of Rome, but they felt like he was too dangerous to keep around, even if Rome didn't. So you think Pan, Pan B was to somehow figure out a way, way to, to make him disappear yeah. without, or better to officially ask for, for forgiveness, or you know, or some rogue element that wasn't associated with them. You know, make it seem like an accident or something. Could it? Could yeah, it be an unfortunate accident. Mm -hmm. Could it be also the reason why they had they felt like they had to have their own kangaroo court trial during darkness is so that during the daytime, from the Jewish people's perception, it's Rome that is indicting Jesus and not the Sanhedrin. Uh, mm, yeah. 
so that they're they're trying to make themselves look as clean as possible amidst them trying to actually get what they want. This is what happens when you revolt. Mm -hmm. Did every Jewish death sentence require Rome's approval, like At that time, stoning yeah. people in the street and things? They had to have Roman authority. They were supposed to. So when so when we see Stephen being later stoned later on, we can see that, that things are things have changed. Things are changing. Um, Rome isn't sure what's happening at that point now because you know Jesus is, you know at that point Jesus has been seen resurrected dozens of times and they can't keep to their story anymore. So yeah, things Rome begins to lose and you know within by the time fifty you know the temple is sacked in like 50, 58, so 20 years from now, the, the, the temple is sacked and everything's chaos. All right, so we move to the governor, Luke 23, 1 through 5. So we've gone through Caiaphas, and now we're looking to the Roman overlords, Luke 23, 1 5. The whole assembly got up and led Jesus to Pilate and began to accuse him. They said, we have found this man misleading our people, opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar and claiming that he is Christ the king. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, that's what you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no legal basis for action against this man. But they objected strenuously, saying, he agitates the people with his teaching throughout Judea, starting from Galilee all the way here. Found this man misleading our people, opposing the payments of taxes to Caesar. Was there any of that in the trial? No. So I imagine Pilate's mood, already sour over the Sanhedrin's sudden, insistent intrusion so early in the morning. He, it worsens as he grasps the situation. They want to execute a Galilean prophet. His seasoned instincts tell him that something isn't right. He questions Jesus, and then he tells the council, I find no guilt in this matter. And so a game of political chess ensues between Pilate and the Sanhedrin, neither realizing that they're pawns, not kings. And Pilate makes his first move. As a Galilean, Jesus falls under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. So let him judge, Luke 23, 6-12. Hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was from Herod's district, Pilate sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was very glad to see Jesus, for he had heard about Jesus and had wanted to see him for quite some time. He was hoping to see Jesus perform some signs. Herod questioned Jesus at length, but Jesus didn't respond. The chief priests and legal experts were there fiercely accusing Jesus. Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt. Herod mocked him by dressing Jesus in elegant clothes and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate and Herod became friends with each other that day. Before this, they had been enemies. So as you can hear, Herod initially receives Jesus happily. Like He's like, oh, I get to have this guy who's going to do all these miracles for me. Like He's wanting a performance. But Jesus refuses to entertain or even respond. So Herod, disappointed, blocks the move by returning Jesus to Pilate. And now bitter enemies become friends. Emboldened by the actions of his newfound friend, Pilate then makes a second move. Mark 15, 6 through 11. 
During the festival, Pilate released one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. A man named Barabbas was locked up with the rebels who had committed murder during an uprising. The crowd pushed forward and asked Pilate to release someone as he regularly did. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of jealousy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate's a smart dude. He's figured out now what's going on, right? So he offers to release Jesus as this year's annual Passover pardoned prisoner. But I think he knew the chief priest would refuse. And Pilate is astounded. The Sanhedrin prefers a thief and a murderer to this peasant prophet. Now we hear the repeated shouts of crucify him, crucify him, ringing through the courtyard. Pilate tries a third move, John 19, 1-7. Then Pilate had Jesus taken and whipped. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and dressed him in a purple robe. Over and over they went up to him and said, Greetings, King of the Jews. They slapped him in the face. Pilate came out of the palace again and said to the Jewish leaders, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I, I find no grounds for a charge against him. A charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns, thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. When the chief priests, priests and their duties saw him, deputies saw him, they shouted out, Crucify, crucify. Pilate told them, You take him and crucify him. I don't find any grounds for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders replied, We have a law, and according to this law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be God's son. So Pilate has Jesus severely flogged and humiliated in the hopes that that would curb the council's bloodthirst. But again, that move is blocked. And the council insists that Jesus must be crucified because he's made himself out to be God's son. We cannot tolerate that. So if they were playing a game of chess, it's now check. At this point, I wonder what Pilate thinks of the religious leaders. I mean, he understands what they're trying to do. So why do you think he bothers to be in opposition to them? You know what I mean? It's like, it seems clear to him, right, that they're bound and determined by hook or by crook to do what? So why bother be in opposition? I think anything to be a pain in the Jewish leadership side. <laughs> Win for him. <coughs> okay. I also think that he has presided over enough different cases and situations that he can see that this is this literally just comes down to jealousy. So if he can just appease them, then he can let a perfectly uh, innocent man go. Mm -hmm. You know, it. I don't know. It's a. It's his wife that. Yeah. Had told says, him. Yeah, I have a dream about that. Yeah, mm -hmm. like. Yeah. So you you ought to let this guy go. Washes his hands of. Yeah. Exactly. He, he, he. It's weighing on him. I do think it's interesting. It's like he's like literally going to bat for Jesus. Be like, look, 
this guy hasn't done anything. Like, here, take him back. No? Okay. Jesus, sorry, this is going to suck. Let's do this to you. All right, try again. Yeah. You know, like, I'm trying to save you here. And, what, yeah, yeah, it's just... So what happens now, then, is Peter, I'm sorry, Pilate's fear grows. <clears throat> because Jesus' divine claim could, as he thinks about it, threaten Rome. Worse, it could be true. Roman deities supposedly could take on human form, so I wonder if he decides further questioning. He decides that furthering, further questioning is in order, just to make sure. John eighteen eight to eleven. When Pilate heard this word, he was even more afraid. He went back into the residence and spoke to Jesus, "Where are you from?" Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate said, "You won't speak to me." Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and also to crucify you? Jesus replied, You would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. That's why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Mm. So that further questioning of Jesus only serves to unnerve him further. Jesus is telling him, you have, You're just a pawn. In all of this, all of you are just pawns in this because someone bigger and greater is making these moves. But one last attempt, one last move, try, Pilate tries to persuade the Sanhedrin to release Jesus. One last black, uh, one left, one last block, one one trap on the board. But the Sanhedrin would have none of it because the council has Pilate right where they want him, like he's cornered. He has. Only one move. So for them, it's checkmate. John 19, verse 12. <clears throat> From that moment on, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. However, the Jewish leaders cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are not a friend of the emperor. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. <laughs> you see why it's checkmate? It's like, if you release this man, you're not a friend of the emperor. That's a terrifying thought for him, right? Because if you're not the friend of the empire or the emperor, guess what? You're either dead or you're out of that position of power for sure. So Pilate has Jesus flogged and then he washes his hands of the matter and sends him to be crucified. Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's house and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a red military coat on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand. Then they bent down in front of him and mocked him, saying, Hey, king of the Jews. After they spit on him, they took the stick and struck his head again and again. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the military coat and put his own clothes back on him. They led him away to crucify him. So these rebellious Jewish leaders, Gentiles, and spiritual powers unwittingly collaborate in executing the only innocent death that could possibly grant the guilty life. These corrupt Jewish leaders will lead him directly to the cross, believing that they're the ones who have done it. Now we arrive at the cross. Morning wanes as Jesus stumbles out of the praetorium, horribly beaten and bleeding profusely. 
The Roman soldiers have been brutal in their creative cruelty. Thorns have ripped Jesus' scalp and his back as one grotesque, oozing wound. Golgotha is barely a third of a mile through the garden gate, but Jesus has no strength to manage the 40-pound crossbar. So Simon of Cyrene is drafted from the crowd. Matthew 27, 33-38. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means skull place, they gave Jesus wine mixed with vinegar to drink. But after tasting it, he didn't want to drink it. After they crucified him, they divided up his clothes among them by drawing lots. They sat there guarding him. They placed above his head the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They crucified with him two outlaws, one on his right side and one on his left. Jesus is now hanging in sheer agony on one of the cruelest instruments of torture ever devised. Nails had been driven through his wrist, the same through his feet, a sign above Jesus declared in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, who he is, the King of the Jews. And there he hangs, flanked on both sides by thieves, and around him are gawkers and mockers. Matthew 27, 39-44. Those who were walking by insulted Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, So you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself. If you are God's son, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the legal experts and the elders, were making fun of him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel, so let him come down from the cross now. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, so let God deliver him now if he wants to. He said, I'm God's son. The outlaws who were crucified with him insulted him in the same way. None of them understands that if Jesus saves himself, their only hope for salvation is lost. Jesus asks his father to forgive them. The other crucified thief sees a Messiah in the mutilated man beside him, and he asks the Messiah to remember him. The high priestly prayer of Jesus is beginning to be answered, and millions upon millions will follow. It's mid-afternoon now, and the eerie darkness that has fallen has everyone on edge. But for Jesus, the darkness is a horror that he has never known. This, more than the nails and thorns and lashings, is what made him sweat blood in the garden. The Father's wrath is hitting him in full force. He is in that moment no longer the blessed, but the cursed. He has become sin. In terrifying isolation, cut off from his Father and all humanity, he screams, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shortly after three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus, in fulfillment of ancient prophecy, whispers hoarsely for a drink, John 19, 28 to 30. After this, knowing that everything was already completed, in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. The full jar of sour wine was nearby, so the soldier soaked a sponge in it, placed it on a hyssopad branch, and held it to his lips. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, It is completed. Bowing his head, he gave up his life. In love, he has drained the cup of his father's wrath to the dregs. He has borne our full curse. There is no debt left to pay, and he has nothing left to give. The wine moistens his mouth just enough to say that one word, 
translated, it is finished, and God the Son dies. What does it mean when we are burdened by guilt or shame for Jesus to declare over our sin, it is finished? What does that mean for us, for the world, for Jesus to declare over all of that, being sin for us, it is finished? When the uh, high priest goes to do to to sacrifice the lamb that he is supposed to bring to the temple, that is supposed to be the word that he says. That the phrase that the high priest gets to say, "It is finished," after he sacrificed the lamb because the sins are covered; they are forgiven; they are no more. But Jesus said that instead. So no longer is it just yeah. covered, it's now paid. It's paid. Um, can, can I kind of go back a little bit to the uh, wine mixed with gall? This gall is a term commits, which is leaven. So that meant that if he took that, he would have taken in leaven, which the Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb to be pure, will not have leaven anywhere in the house and all. So he, he did not take that so that he got to stay the perfect lamb of God to be sacrificed. And also in the um, CEB it said, it's translated as completed. It is completed mm -hmm. instead of finished. And so that completed his work on earth and he died. Because he had now saved us from the future that was facing us. So, it would have been really surreal to be a soldier that had presided over many crucifixions to watch him ask for a drink and then give up his life versus be there often for days on end, slowly dying. Mm -hmm. That would have been, for someone who's seen that kind of a death, mm -hmm. very impactful to see <clears throat> one just stop choose fighting. to die. Yeah, stop fighting. Yeah. They didn't have to break his legs. Like they right. So, Sherry just blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> um, so if Jesus said that word, would that signal to any Jewish mm. believer in the crowd that he is he chose to die like I am I am the sacrifice would that have signaled yeah. anything or mm. recollection I, I mean you would hope it would but well, it it's is. consistent but yeah. would they have been like oh that's why he chose not to do it in that moment I don't know well also the the having to choose between Jesus and uh, Barabbas was was in that's a Torah thing where you have two rams to be sacrificed. One gets to be taken out and uh, well, they throw it over a cliff just to make sure that it is not going to come back. And the other and the other ram gets to be sacrificed. So, you know, I, I find it interesting on the chess illusion you used earlier that the true checkmate 
was then that's, against Satan. That it was a nice. false check in that. Oh, that's God's check. Yeah, I feel like going back to your question about what does that mean when he says it is finished, it's almost like he's talking to the enemy, like going back to the garden, like this is done. Mm-hmm. I finished it. Like what you started so long ago, <laughs> this little game that you started playing, it's done. It's finished. Yeah. He says it to whom? Who's he saying? Who is that? It is finished directed at. I feel like he's talking to Satan. It's like the spiritual authority would think you're going to, you've done everything you can down to the last second of trying to get him to take wine mixed with milk. I can't help but think it also was declared over all of us. Like, I I needed to hear a high priest say, it is finished for me to be able to. Okay, I'm free from sin now. Yeah. You know, other than that, it's like I'm gonna feel so. Yeah. You know, I'm anticipating. You know, is this really gonna go? As Rob Bell says it's um, the death of Christ on the cross was blood on the doorposts of the universe. I think also if he was separated from God at that particular moment, he was also speaking to God. I think he was speaking to everyone. And to himself. And to himself. I did it. I'm done. My time here is done. I know we're running late, but we want to finish. I want to leave us with um, the tomb. So a bright irony of this darkest of days is the men who step forward to claim the corpse of Jesus for burial. They weren't family members. And they weren't disciples. Not even John. Not Peter. Not... Lazarus. Instead, Matthew 27, 57 to 61. That evening, a man named Joseph came. He was a rich man from Arimathea who had been a disciple of Jesus. He came to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission to take it. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and laid it down in his own new tomb, which he had carved out of the rock. After he rolled out a large stone at the door of the tomb, he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting in front of the tomb. So who comes to claim the body of Jesus? But not one of the twelve. And Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin. It's one more unexpected thread of grace woven into this tapestry of redemption. They quickly wrap up Jesus' body in a sheet and they lay it in the nearby tomb. Evening is falling and they don't have time to fully dress it with spices. Mary and Mary are there, careful to note the tomb's location because they plan to return the next day or after the Sabbath on the first day of the week to make sure, again, that it's finished. The chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to be sure it was finished too, so they take steps to ensure that their victory over Jesus is complete, at least in their minds, Matthew 27, 62-66. The next day, which was the day after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. They said, Sir, we remember that while the deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will arise. Therefore, order the grave to be sealed until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will make worse than the first, Pilate replied. You have soldiers for guard duty. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Then they went and secured the tomb by sealing the stone and posting the guard. 
So quietness descends upon Jerusalem and everyone gathered there. Jesus is dead. His tomb is under guard. The sun goes down. Night sets in. Expectations are low. Saturday will be silent, but Sunday will be a day like none other. For in an ironic twist, Satan's triumph is actually his defeat, and Christ's defeat is actually his victory. So I wonder, as we wrap it up, I wonder in what ways Christ's sacrifice, as we've experienced it together this morning, gives us a new perspective going into Holy Week and Easter. I wonder in what ways Christ's sacrifice, as we've experienced it together through this narrative, gives us a new perspective going into Holy Week and Easter this year. Another thing is when he said it is finished, the veil tore the high priest would have been in that area when the veil tore and was never, I mean, it never patched up. Uh, so that separation between God in the holiest, holiest of holies is now totally open so that we can, we can be there. Was the mindset of the two men from the Sanhedrin who helped prepare Jesus' body, a mindset of, we may have made a mistake, so I'm going to help out the way I can, or a mindset of, we want to make sure this is done in such a way that we, we can, you know, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to be here to confirm that he's actually dead. It's the, the former is, the, the witness of Scripture is the former. Mm-hmm. That Nicodemus and... Um, uh, other people that we know of in the in, in the Sanhedrin believed it wasn't a unanimous thing. So they, you know, the witness of scriptures, they were the ones who believed. They they offered up a burial that was uh, fit for a king. Yeah, honorable. The other way it changes our perspective, or gives us a new perspective. Going. We don't typically put the whole story together like this, right? Mm-hmm. Anything else? <clears throat> All right. We close each of our gatherings. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.